Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Outer Sanctum Podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording today and the lands on which you are listening. We pay our respects to all elders, past, present and emerging, and to any other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. In the final, groundbreakers, history makers. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am your host, Kate Sear, and I'm delighted to be with you all. It's been another big week in footy. It gave us a much needed opportunity this week to avoid non-stop election coverage. But when the Dees defeated the Saints in a much anticipated clash, I had to wonder whether that might be an election omen of some kind. And speaking of election omens, Port Power secured a much needed win in the AFL-M before shocking the footy world with a move to bring Gemma Houghton into their AFLW squad. I wondered, do those successes signal good times ahead for the so-called teal independence? This week also saw the second leaders debate, which was dominated mainly by Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese just shouting at each other about inflation and the vaccine and integrity in politics and the definition of a woman. And watching all of that, I have to admit that I just wanted to shout, including about the fact that none of the journalists were asking the most important question of all. When on earth will AFLW season seven start? Maybe we can shed some light on that today. So I've gotten together the women that would get the number one vote on my How to Vote card if I ever had the chance. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Julia Kiera. Hi, I'm Shelley Ware. Well, as I said at the outset, it was a big weekend in the AFL-M. Melbourne remain the top of the ladder and they're super impressive, very hard to go past. But there were lots of other highlights on the weekend. As a Hawthorne supporter, it's very hard for me to acknowledge this, but I have to acknowledge the performance of Essendon, who played really well under difficult circumstances. They had five players go out really early on um, or just, you know, just before the game started with a virus. And so it was a bit of a makeshift squad and they came back from behind to beat Hawthorne. It was really impressive and, and great for them. But what were your highlights? Julia, what was your highlight of the round? Well, Shelley and my highlights might be on a similar theme. Um, I went <laughs> to, I actually attended an AFL-M game in person. I went to the Carlton Crows game on Mother's Day afternoon and I took my son, Toby. It's the first AFL-M game I've ever let him attend. (laughs) And I'm worried some MRA activists might be um, listening to this because he was so desperate to get there the whole way on the train. He was like, are we really seeing men play? 
are we seeing the men play? Because he, I've taken him to so many AFLW games and he's a bit over it. Anyway, but he he loved it and he was so enthusiastic about so many things that I just never really even noticed at the football. You know, he loved the mascots. Clearly he listens to the pod. He loved Navy Nina and um, <laughs> Captain Carlton. He loved when they did backflips. He loved, um, you know, the scoreboards and the stats. He loved how after every Carlton game um, at Marvel, you know, they do a bit of a light show. It, all of that he was just absolutely wrapped mm. about. Whenever there was music playing, he would stand up and dance in his seat. And, um, yeah, it was a really actually nice way for me to spend Mother's Day with him, yeah, seeing the footy game through his eyes because I've never really experienced that before. That's beautiful. And they played pretty well, Carlton. What was your highlight, Shell? It is. You're right, Julia. It is along the same theme as you. I loved it when we saw Patrick Cripps at the end of the game in which Carlton did win. I loved the fact that there was this young man that he gave the ball to. You know how they gave, give a ball out when they're winning? And I love that photograph where it's captured and it's just this pure delight that you can see on around the socials everywhere. It reminded me of the joy of AFL because sometimes in this industry that we work in, we can actually get lost in all of the, why hasn't this happened? Why is this happening to this person? And, you know, this should have happened. And we can get a little bit caught up and and I do too and have lost, to be perfectly honest, over periods of time, a little bit of love for the game and a little bit of love for the industry itself. So to be reminded, like with your story about your beautiful son and his experience, and then to see that delight in that young man's face, it was uplifting and it reminded Reminded me to, you know, just get over myself a little minute there and actually <laughs> engage a little bit on the energetically positive side of things. <laughs> I have to say the $64 million question for me, Julia, listening to you say that and saying that you saw the game through Toby's eyes is um, I need to know whether you also saw Patrick Cripps through Toby's <laughs> eyes because you're on record as not having been a, bit, a very big fan of Cripps. I did see an article today claiming that he's going to win the Brownlow. Made me think of you. Wondered how you how you would feel about that. But how did you feel about Patrick Cripps's performance? And is Toby a Cripps fan? Well, Toby's favourite player is Toby Nankervis. Um, oh, you can have a guess why. That's yeah, his favourite yeah. player. Um, <laughs> thankfully, not Toby Green. I think Patrick Cripps is having an outstanding year. And perhaps many of the gripes I've had about him in previous years have been rectified, including some goal kicking, you know, not doing as many hospital hand passes, although there are still <laughs> a few of those. No, he's having a great year. He's, he, and he looks a lot fitter. He looks so much fitter. So he's the bursting through packs and all that stuff that I think he was trying to do last year that he got into trouble about are, are coming off this year. This is a question without notice to either of you. Um, when you see a player like Patrick Cripps really improve his performance over a year and at the same time the team has lifted its performance, how much of it do you think is the, the player you know, sort of dragging up the team or the the fact that the team's performance overall has lifted pushes that player to greater heights. I mean, is that is that a factor for someone like Cripps, do you think? I think at Carlton it's a whole it's it's a whole lot of things. I think the fact that he seems to be less injured so he can move the way that he wants to means that he can play the way that he, I guess, was playing in his head. Um last year he's got more midfielders around him, you know, Hewitt's come in, Chera's come in, there's a new coach. Charlie Kerno's back. There's a lot of factors at Carlton that mean that they're just playing better and they've got a, a better composition of players on the field that are carrying the load. So I think it's more than he's dragging a struggling team up. I, I think the team 
as a whole has got a lot more belief, has a much better game plan that they're executing and there's better mids around him as well. So he still plays like he has to do it all himself, but he's actually got the support around him this year, I think. What do you think, Shelley? Yeah, it's made a big difference, the support around him, absolutely. And playing for a new coach, bringing in a new culture, and that seems to be making a big difference as well. And I did offer my husband as a kicking coach to Patrick at an event. (laughs) 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 My husband is an excellent coach, I have to say, and he's very good at breaking down the particulars of what's needed within a skill. So I did say, you know, like there are some things he could work on. So <laughs> I don't know if the fear of my husband entering the Carlton Football Club is enough, but I'm just saying, I'm just saying I did offer. Fabulous. Well, that sounds right, Shelley. That's, that sounds like a causal link for me. I'm, I'm happy with that. Um, one other highlight, which I do want to mention because it made me think of, of you made me think of this, Shelley, listening to you talk about the kind of, you know, rekindling your love for the game and, and how you can kind of lose that sometimes. And someone who's been really maligned is a former Carlton player and that's Levi Casbolt. And I really enjoyed watching the Gold Coast Sydney game over the weekend and seeing him kick that winning goal and just seeing the joy from the Gold Coast Suns players. I have a soft spot for the Gold Coast teams and, and I thought that was a, a really, really impressive win because you would have thought that Sydney would run over them at the end and in the final minutes in particular I think Gold Coast stood up really well and it was great to see Levi Casbolt uh, finish it off and you know he was obviously very happy after the game and I just I felt I felt so pleased for him because he's struggled a bit and you know he's copped a lot from fans and it was great to see him him right at the center of it. All right, it's that time of the pod, sisters. Are you ready to roll up your sleeves and melee? Sure am. So one of the big international stories of the year emerged this week out of the United States, where a leaked draft opinion from Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito foreshadowed that the landmark decision in Roe versus Wade, which legalised abortion in the United States, is going to be overturned. That has led to fierce debate in the States protests across across the country and a lot of anxieties, of course, about where this is all going to lead. There's been a lot happening in the last few days. We see now that the state of Louisiana already appears to be proposing further steps with a new bill introduced that would criminalise certain contraceptives, such as IUDs and Idaho Republicans are discussing a similar ban. There are many other options being discussed or planned in other places around the country, including Missouri, Tennessee, Ohio, Arkansas, North Dakota, and Oklahoma, to name just a few. And these are obviously really profoundly disturbing developments. And to those of our listeners who live over in the States, particularly women, non-binary and trans men, we we really send you our, our solidarity and thoughts at this time. But what we wanted to do was think about how this might actually intersect with sport because it is going to intersect with sport. I think it does have implications. One way was immediately apparent just a few days ago when the F1 drivers were in Miami for the first ever Miami Grand Prix and Lewis Hamilton released a statement. He said, I love being in the States, but I can't ignore what's going on right now and what some in the government are trying to do to the women who live here. Everyone should have the right to choose what they do with their bodies. We can't let that choice be taken away. And I'm sure that there's going to be other athletes over the next weeks and months who speak up about these issues. And I can foresee yet another debate about the intersections between politics and sport and athletes and free speech. But it was a tweet by Bruce Miller who is the creator and executive producer of what feels like a documentary series now, The Handmaid's Tale, that caught my eye. He tweeted, 
I'm not sure that I can ask actors or crew members to travel and work in a state where an ectopic pregnancy would sentence my employee to death. And that tweet got me thinking about sport. You know, what's going to happen? Is it feasible that major sporting events can take place in these states where abortion or contraception or other forms of healthcare can be heavily criminalised. What would you do if you're a member of a team and you want to object to travelling to Texas or Louisiana or one of those other states? Can sporting organisations or clubs require or insist that women non-binary people or trans men compete under such risky conditions? And what would happen if some of those states wanted to host major international sporting events like the Olympics or the World Cup or something else? Can those sporting bodies really expect athletes to go into those spaces and compete in such a dangerous dangerous environment where really fundamental healthcare rights and rights to bodily autonomy and integrity are being violated. I wanted to get your takes on this, Shelley, and I'll come to you first. I wondered what was your reaction to this story and what do you think it means for the future of sport in the United States? Well, your first question was, can we ask people to go there? And my answer would be no. I wouldn't go there at all. I wouldn't risk my anyone within my family who had any kind of chance of actually being criminalised for whatever their laws are covering and whatever their future laws will cover to make changes. Absolutely not. What does it mean for the future? I think it will have serious consequences. We're only just at the start of it. You know, right now it's just, they're just words. We haven't really seen it put into place. And, you know, we haven't seen real life stories come out of this, but there must be people who are absolutely terrified to be living there for starters. I would go as far as to say I would leave the States. I actually wouldn't actually live within them as a woman and I think it's going to have huge consequences in sport and in general life. And like you said, my heart goes out to them. I'm devastated for these. I just I can't even find a period of time in history that I can, you know, like me say, well, this isn't 1920. You know, people often say this is 2022. I just... I just I'm struggling to even say that. But I wonder, are they including condoms in this whole situation, Kate? I haven't. Well, interestingly, I did read today that a senator or a politician of some kind, some persuasion who comes from Arizona has proposed banning condoms. And I do wonder what the implications of that might be. I would currently be moving. Yeah. I would pick my suitcases, would be packed, my house would be packed up and gone. Julia, I want to come to you and, and ask you for your reflections. And I know we often ask you to do this to, to put your kind of a hat on from your past life, having worked in a, in a footy club looking after the welfare of players, how can sporting organisations support athletes, especially in team sports, through this process? And, and how do you think clubs will manage these issues when people are likely to be criminalised if they have to go, say, and play basketball in Missouri or, or head down to Texas for baseball or whatever it might be? How, how will clubs handle this? I feel like you've asked me, like, how do we make it safe for people to play squash on the moon? Like, it's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not safe. Like, how, how do you make it safe to, to walk into a fire? Uh, it's, it's, it's not, it won't be safe for lots of people. Um, lots of women and non-binary people use contraceptives and IUDs for a million reasons. They will be in those sports teams and some of them just use them to control their periods uh, because they're professional athletes um, and that's a long-standing process to think that using something like that will then you'll then go to jail for it because you 
go into a state where it's been criminalised just is so bananas. Like what's the cost of playing the sport? Like these costs are so high and I think we then come back to what's the role of sport in society and all that. Is it worth risking your life? Having said that, I do think that there are some athletes and people who play in sports teams who are so competitive that they will play sport in the mouth of a volcano, you know, like you you wouldn't be able to stop them. And so I'm wondering, you know, what would it be like to be in a team where half the team will go to whatever this state is no matter what and they'll pay whatever price it is and the other half refuse and I don't know how you would manage that. I think that it would have to come down to a very strong team culture and relationship to to navigate that or what if it's you know it's the game to get into the final or it's the grand final game and you're having these discussions I think it would be very difficult you know it it has got me wondering when you you pose this question you know we've had these discussions in in the public around you know the Sochi Olympics or going to the Beijing Olympics you know places where there are human rights abuses our team still went to those places, but there's something about this where we're questioning it because this is something that also violates the rights of white women. And in those countries, there were people that we didn't know that were hidden, genocide of, of people that ha- are not held up in the same way. So the outcomes would be different. I think some teams would say no because they would see that it's something that does actually apply to people that look like them. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting point, Julia, because you also wonder whether it has kind of broader implications or if there's a ripple effect in the sense that it does, you know, does it get people thinking about the fact that, you know, they may have been willing to travel to compete in the Olympics in the past in one of those countries that you describe that routinely violate human rights, not just of women, but of, you know, numerous populations, people of colour and so on, ethnic minorities and the like, you know, whether they'll reflect on that and kind of, yeah, revisit or rethink it. And, you know, I would not be so kind of naively optimistic to suggest that this might have implications more broadly, that we might start to reconsider the fact that, you know, the World Cup's being held in Qatar for example, and that Qatar routinely engages in human rights violations. But you would hope that people would join some of those dots, wouldn't you? And that, that, that at least you'd get people starting to think, oh, it's not just me that's affected actually. This, this stuff's going on around the world all the time and maybe I've turned a blind eye to it in the past or overlooked it. Mm. I love that. I love what you've said there, Julia, because that's exactly what goes on, isn't it? We can manage to turn a blind eye until it's something that we can actually really relate to impacting our own self. And that seems to be when people will kick up more of a fuss. But I hope that your words actually make them think about other people that are impacted in a different way. And we can have a have a good think about it because I'll certainly be having a think. I mean, one of the really big issues, which is kind of at the centre of both Roe versus Wade as a decision by the Supreme Court and the fallout and implications for this is privacy. So initially when Roe versus Wade was decided and abortion was legalised, it was done on the basis of privacy, that you know, it's a private decision, a private matter, and that what a woman chooses to do with her body is a matter for her. And one of the things that I think you know, this change, if and when it comes about, all these raft of changes when they come about, uh, risks exposing is player privacy. As you said, Julie, you know, what happens if half the team decides we're willing to go down and play in Texas and half doesn't? How do you explain the absence of the other half or the absence of one player who um, it seems, you know, is, is kind of conscientiously objecting to having to play? You know, what if a woman has, for instance, an IUD and, 
she says, I'm like, I can't go to Louisiana because that's a criminal offence and I'm not prepared. I'm not prepared to do that. Does she have the right to have that information kept confidential and how will it be handled in a sporting environment? And I've thought a lot about player privacy and medical information over the years. And a few years ago, I was on a really interesting panel where one of the presenters said something that's always stuck in my mind. And that is that as sports fans, we're privy to all kinds of very personal medical information about athletes, bodies and performances that arguably we don't have any any right at all to know. And yet it's kind of just normalized that we we know what's happening with Patrick Gripps's groin or Dustin Martin's shoulder, that kind of stuff. This question about private, you know, the kind of boundaries or parameters of private uh, athlete information came up again recently in footy when Ollie Wines unfortunately experienced a health problem Uh, a heart problem in the form of myocarditis. I understand that he's well, um, which is great news. But when that was made public, he was subject to a torrent of abuse on social media. There was a lot of speculation that the heart problem he had had been caused by the COVID vaccine. People were scrutinizing his medical history. They were demanding information and they were being really critical of him. And it got me thinking again about, you know, why it is that we have any of that information in the public domain in the first place. So Shelley, I want to come to you first on this question of privacy and ask you that when it comes to really private, potentially serious uh, health information like this about a heart condition or something else, why do we as fans know about it? (laughs) Do we need to know about it or should we move away from this approach of sharing really intimate details? Yeah, I don't think it's our business. You know, you both know um, that I had a heart issue that I kept to myself for over six months. I was very concerned to the point where my father had passed away at the age of 50, where I actually thought that it was happening to me and that I was going to pass. And I, I didn't share it with people. And it was so hard I hadn't shared it and it was one of the most difficult periods of my life because it was that constant anxiety and that constant fear that it was going to happen today, I was going to die today. This is what i got to get the answers and it took a really long time to get my answers for what I needed. But I could not imagine the anxiety and stress that Ollie went through with everybody knowing and all of the social media carry on with the fact that it was all over the media. If people had have known, I feel like my anxiety would have gone to another level. I needed to process it myself, break it down privately. And I think we're taking that away from these players, that moment just to have that self-reflection and and what's going on and can I handle this? Who do I trust and who do I want to talk to about? We take all of that away from them. I don't think it's good enough anymore. I think we've gone too far. Julia, what do you what it, what's your take on it? We've talked about how sport is art sometimes and I think that we then confuse perhaps that the athlete's body is like a painting, that we can go up close to it and scrutinise it and ask, is this on canvas? Are these oils? You know, like that we can ask all these questions and that those questions aren't incredibly private and none of our business, that their body is, you know, the thing that, that makes the art and that we want to know what's going to happen to it. You've done a leg, you've done an ankle, syndesmosis, rah, rah, rah. what are the details? When are you coming back? All this stuff, we talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. And I think also the fact that we've often talked about, you know, obvious physical ailments, you know, a broken leg or whatever that are obvious to the eye that I guess are less private in a way to talk about because they, they're not that they're superficial, but they're, they're injuries that we understand how one can heal from them. And, and go on. We've taken that same kind of attitude and behavior and then we apply it to 
you know, a heart condition. We apply it to concussion. We apply it to mental health. Shelley's experience, I think, happens to lots of people that, that some things just need to be worked out by yourself. You need your own time to get your head around things. Everyone loves to offer an opinion. <laughs> I think we've all in this in this little uh, chat here, oh, we've, all, we've all had yes. our own health issues. And as soon as you mention it to someone, the things you get suggested or the stories you've taught, you get told, oh, my friend had that she dropped dead you know like just people cannot (laughs) help themselves and I get it and I've probably done it to other people too but it's a very hard part of having relationships to be honest overall I think the public's in a bad habit I think that we think that there's things at our business that aren't yeah I agree the public isn't a bad habit that's a perfect way to say it but we have to also look at it individually like some people love everyone to know everything you know and, and get that advice and do all of that so if that person is that way inclined knock yourself out I literally go into a hub and do not even tell my husband until I know the exact detail of what is going on with my body and I think we take that away from people their opportunity to be individuals and handle their own health in their own way Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I'm Katie Brennan and you're listening to The Legends from the Outer Sanctum. I mean, one of the other things that strikes me about it that I think is quite strange is the way as well in which we impose these kind of timelines on injuries and how long they they will take to come back from. Listening to you, Julia, makes me think that that's probably been done for a really long time for really obvious and understandable reasons. You know, if somebody does a hamstring and it's a certain, I don't know, <laughs> grade tear or whatever. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how how you describe the different types of hamstring injury, but you can estimate within close range that it'll take three weeks to come back from or whatever. So we've historically done that with physical injuries. But I also wonder whether that places additional strain on players because there's an expectation then that, you know, you, you come back within three weeks. And it's not a problem from the perspective of the club, I hope, if it takes you four weeks or five weeks. I don't know. But a lot of speculation then gets generated among fans about why isn't he back yet or why isn't she back yet and what's going on. And when I think about the combination of, as you're saying, Shelley, you know, when you do have a health issue or an injury of any kind, when you couple that with the kind of psychological aspects of the injury and the stress and anxiety and pressure you feel, all of the other stuff that sits around it, which can impact your ability to heal and heal quickly or that can complicate it or that has implications for how you go about your recovery. I find it strange that we nominate those timelines now because I I worry about the impact on players' mental health. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I've heard this so many times in women's sport where I've done a hammy, the doctor said six weeks, so that means four. Where the athlete just wipes 30% off the time. I've heard that so many times. Yeah, and um, where they want to come back as soon as possible. And so it's almost like 
the doctor or physio or whatever needs to put like five weeks on it. It's just to, you know, just to give the player the, the time to actually heal. And I remember the first year I played football, I dislocated my thumb very badly and I kind of ripped the ligaments in my thumb apart. And the and I was new to oh. football and um, the hand therapist I saw said it was eight weeks. And so I was like, okay, it's eight weeks. And I took eight weeks and the negative commentary I received from my teammates about that because I just done a tiny little thumb was incredible and it was really new to me. I I didn't understand that. So I think footy clubs are full of that stuff. I know that I'm talking about playing community footy, but everyone wants to get back out there as soon as possible. And so then the player themselves is already putting that pressure on themselves um, and the teammates around them. So you've got to really keep that in check, I guess, as a coaching group and as an assistant coaching group and S&C that you're really taking away that pressure from the player. You know, you can express your disappointment that they're injured overall. You know, we miss you out there, but get your body right. It's not a it's not a race and you'll, you come back when, you, when you're ready. And I think that there are lots of ways that, coaches and players and family members could really counteract that message and put way too much pressure on on players and players you know hide things or they say it didn't hurt when it did or you know they push themselves it's hard to flub your way through a fitness test but you you know push yourself through the fitness test when you're not ready to but and, and all that stuff it's 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 not looking after players it's putting way too much pressure on them and then to have little jimmy whatever in the peanut gallery <laughs> In your Instagram comments, asking why Jimmy you're not back 1632 with two followers. When I did my great two hamstring in the EDFL in 1985, I was back the next week. <laughs> soft, soft. Soft. That's why I'm extremely grateful that we had a national look at concussion because mm. that was a huge problem. That problem you're talking about, Julia, is rife within football clubs to the point where I've heard stories over and over again of players not even being spoken to at AFL level because they're injured, they're not of any value to the club. So that just pushes and pushes these people to come back into the game and it's um, a real culture change that needs to happen. What about mental health in this context? Because... You know, historically, when people might have been out out for mental health reasons, personal family reasons, those kind of issues, they would not, that information would not have been made public. They might have been out for general soreness, something like that. And over time, of course, when people are taking a break for mental health reasons, that information is now shared much more routinely with the football public. And I think, um, thinks that that's a positive, you know, that if if we're going to have information about physical injuries shared, treating mental health normally and destigmatizing it and not sort of normalizing it is a positive. But I, I also accept that there are real risks for that. You know, we do see, you know, at Jimmy45967 <laughs> with three followers. Oh, sorry, he had two followers, didn't he, Shelley? Two, I, gave two, him an, I gave him an extra follower. I gave him none. I gave him an extra <laughs> follower. I shouldn't have. But, you know, chiming in and speculating about whether mental health concerns are quote-unquote real or genuine, that kind of stuff. We can't eradicate that from the game, of course, but I do wonder what your thoughts are on also sharing that information with the public. Shelley? Knowing people who suffer mental health, 
I don't think it's the time to ask them if it's okay to tell people. I really feel like myself that they're vulnerable and that their spirit can often be in a not as strong as what the person who's asking the question is it okay for me to tell people I think it's you know their voice their own time and I do think we need to talk about mental health and do all of those things but I don't think it's up to the person who's suffering the mental health at that time I think for them it's about healing and for us coming up with another reason why they're not there unless I just don't think it's right. Julie, what do you think, obviously, having been involved in, I'm sure, and exposed to some of those conversations within clubs in the past? I mean, is is the solution to just not reveal the details of anybody's health condition across the board? Is that too extreme? I don't know. I think that I actually think that would be great. I don't know if the public would accept it or the broadcasters <laughs> yeah. would accept it because what would they talk about 90% of the time? <laughs> um <laughs> But I, I agree with what Shelley's saying is that I don't think it's on the person who's experiencing it at the time to have to divulge the details of what's happening to them. But if I disagree with myself, <laughs> um, you know, I'm a social worker and I've worked in mental health and I do think that AFL players could actually play a huge role in destigmatizing definitely a lot of things around mental health, around I guess more of the specifics of it. I think that the public is very um, aware of anxiety and depression. But to be honest, I would love it if there is a footballer who came out and said, you know what, when I was 20 I received a diagnosis of schizophrenia and Mm -hmm. it hit me hard and I've been seeing a psychiatrist and I put these things in, this is the type of thing I experience these are the measures I've put in place. This is the support I have around me. And look at me, I'm living life. Mm. Because I'm, you know, there would be <laughs> players in the system who have received diagnoses of mental health disorders that we don't hear about, that are incredibly stigmatized, that we only hear about when there's a, you know, a violent offense that's been, occur- you know, that's occurred. And we don't hear the great stories of people who receive diagnoses of of illness that the public has learnt to be afraid of, but lots of people manage really well. I think that AFL players, they're seen as these heroes. And imagine if your hero also dealt with an illness in this way and they still did all right. I think that there would be enormous power in that and I think that those illnesses are more common than we think and all the public knows of them is that if you got a diagnosis like that, that your life would be over and you would be a burden and all that stuff and it's just not true and I think we need more examples of that and I'm sure that there are players in the system that could do that. However, it's a huge thing to ask of someone because there is so much stigma around them, around those things. And I just would also like to flag that I know that these sorts of diagnoses are quite contested um, amongst people in the consumer movement. So I know that that's not universally agreed upon. I think when private information is, becomes public, is it serving a public good? If it is to destigmatize something, then yeah, I think that there is a role there to play, but maybe not, you know, right in the moment of someone's absolute turmoil agree that moment let's give them a minute let's give them a minute to put some things into play to make them well enough and then we can have a discussion absolutely agree i have to wonder whether the ideal solution is to not release any uh private health information at all about players and then leave it up to players if they want to 
come forward and talk about physical or mental health issues when they occur. I, I say that in part too because I have a lot of concern about the level of literacy among sports media generally to handle these kinds of discussions sensitively. Um, I think there are what examples of them Kate? having... <laughs> I know, it's very controversial. I mean, I think there are examples of them handling things sensitively, you know, and and I must say that I think a lot of the coverage I saw about the return of Dustin Martin on the weekend was handled well. That impressed me and it was great to see him back, by the way. Yeah, because they're happy. They're Mm. like, oh, he's back, he's back. Yeah, That's why it's handled well. But some of what I heard, some of the discussion I heard was quite sensitive. Oh, good. They good. they did a good good job of that. But yeah, I worry that some of those more nuanced discussions aren't handled very well. Another big story that came out during the week was about also about how fans and audiences feel that they have a right to subject public figures to scrutiny, regardless of the well-being of those that are being scrutinized. And that was the story involving a pretty explosive report published by Sam Landsberger from the Herald Sun regarding some research out of the University of Sydney into the experiences of girls and women in Australian football umpiring. The report that Sam Landsberger had written about and um, also released publicly detailed some pretty shocking stories of harassment and abuse, threats of violence, sexism and racism that umpires complained they had been subject to. And there's also been a follow-up piece also written by Sam in the Herald Sun with some other umpires going into a lot more detail about their experiences. Now, interestingly, the Herald Sun reported that the research was leaked and that the AFL didn't want that report made public. They'd been sitting on it since August of 2021, apparently. But a few days ago, the acting AFL CEO, Kylie Rogers, issued an apology to all those who had been affected by sexism, which I thought was the right step. I have to say that I I do find it pretty strange that the AFL recently introduced a rule that allows umpires to penalise players who dissent or disagree with their decision, apparently in a bid to better protect umpires from criticism, to shield them. And yet at the same time, for nearly nine months, they'd been sitting on that report and buried it. And that report deals with or details a lot more shocking instances of umpires being made to feel unsafe or put in danger um, and and being in unsafe workplaces. So I found that those two things happening at the same time pretty jarring and pretty strange. Julia and Shelley, how did you react to that story? And, you know, what what can we do to, to try and overcome some of these problems, which seem to be pervasive and persistent and just uh, relentless, really? Julia? It's a hard one. And it was, yeah, it was depressing to read that. And it was awful to read that. Um, and we know that the there are so many issues currently with just getting umpires into the game, umpire retention, you know, the public love to bag umpires. But what do we do to support them to get into the role and stay there? You know, we just yell at them. I was at, at that Carlton game. Um, they had, I don't know if it was, a, was it a special round this week for umpires? Anyway, they announced that the umpires were coming out and they were being escorted by junior umpires, right? So there was a group of, I think, five or six junior umpires at the front as they walk out into the middle of the ground. And I swear, and maybe I imagined it, but people started to boo and then realised that they were children and stopped. But that impulse to boo umpires, the game hadn't even started. And so if we think that we're, they're doing that at the highest level, what are they doing at, you know, your, your Sunday afternoon game out in the burbs? I think that 
you know, in the the report, they they spoke about that there are certain structural things that need to change to make it more welcoming uh, for for women. You know, they they need you know uniforms that fit them. Um, they need a change room. You know, I can think of pretty much every club room I ever went into had one umpires change room. So if there are male and female and non-binary umpires, they're all in the one change room together. Um, and so that they need to upgrade the change rooms and so on. But I just thought, well, it doesn't matter if you've got a you know a gender-friendly bathroom to get changed in if the reserve team is drunk and he's harassing you back and forth as you're trying to get in and out of that room. You know, it's just the actual behavior of the players, the patrons, it just really needs to step up a notch. And I think that People really just don't understand if there's no umpires, there's no game. What are you going to do about it? You know, if we want if we want to play this game, we need to actually start treating umpires with, with more respect and, and that, that applies to both men and women in the role. But was it shocking to read the things that women have been subjected to? It was depressingly, I wasn't shocked by it. I thought, of course they would. Of course they would. Of course they would treat women in that way because male umpires they abuse and call a white maggot or whatever and women they would sexualize because that's how you can demean someone. It's depressing. Sorry, guys. It is depressing. I think that clubs on club level, like grassroots level, really need to do something within their own club. Like actually, you know, let's talk about what we see out there within our club. What are we seeing when we go out as players as spectators and you know find out what's happening at your level across in that association and do something about it and change the culture change the way have conversations pull someone up if you see something happening stop and say that's not okay and put a stop to it i think it's about calling finding out what's going on at your club level putting a stop to it by calling it out immediately and having consequences for it because we have to have consequences for it and you cannot play without these people, you know, and they're going out there, they enjoy umpiring. It is a real buzz for them to go out and umpire and we should allow them to have that joy and celebrating that joy with them. So we, I don't know, how many times have I said we need to do better? Um, I think it might, this might be my third story and I think I might have to say we have to do better again. As global citizens, as community citizens as online citizens we have a look people just be better yeah also makes me think as you say julia that everybody everybody who listens to this pod who goes to the footy whether it's the afl um the waffle the sandful local footy vfl vflw whatever it might be has a role to play in kind of being more respectful towards umpires and whether that is you know refraining from abusing the umpires when they make a decision at the local footy on the weekend to cupping them when they come on and when they come off thanking them for their work if you have the capacity as you said shell you know calling out the person who stands next to you who abused them and say hey that's not on you know they're just doing their job and we should be thankful and there's no game without them all of that you know that's something that we can we can all do but um the the report it, it does make for depressing reading as you say Jill it's also sort of not surprising to me it resonates with me I think any woman who has worked in a a sort of traditionally male dominated industry will read that report and it will resonate with them because you know it's that thing about you know women 
non-binary people, trans people being in spaces that many men think don't they're not entitled to be in and that, that, that where they don't belong. And, you know, I, I think I've said on this podcast before, that's certainly something I have experienced working as a lawyer. I've had clients tell me that they don't want to see a woman. You know, what would you know? How, you know, do you have any clue? And being quite abusive to, to me and to, you know, younger, more junior female colleagues. Um, female law students as well. I've seen clients speak to them like that. So it doesn't surprise me. And it's a problem that goes way outside footy, way outside footy, but it's those same kind of dynamics. As I mentioned, the AFL, sorry, the report from the University of Sydney does detail a list of recommendations. I hope that they will all be taken on board and implemented. I think they'll go some way to uh, helping with the problem, but it's obviously a very long-term issue that's going to require sustained energy and attention over a long period of time for us to, to make some inroads. And we've seen some poor leadership from the AFL, let's be honest, about not re- not actually reporting that to the public, this report, or sharing this report with the public. So let's not follow that. Let's tackle this head-on and actually make a difference for these people who rock up so you can play. Yeah, and I think also the AFL, every year they've tinkered with the rules, you know. Remember when that first arm chopping rule came in, the stand rule, our hands in the back? With every change, the viewing public, the, the fans, the audience, when umpires then adjudicate to those rules, the, the fans get upset about it because the game suddenly looks different. What was fair last year is is now a free kick or a 50-metre penalty. It might decide a game. And all that fury from AFL decisions to change rules is directed at umpires and it's it's not justified. So the AFL does need to look after their umpires because they're, they're, they're putting into action these things that you, you're making a decision about. And I think the other thing is that, you know, the public just think they can do it better. If you think you can be an umpire, <laughs> true, go and try and do it. How many times have you watched a game and they have shown you 10 different camera angles of the one thing frame by frame and you still can't work it out if it's touched or not mm. and you think that a human being with a human eyeball <laughs> Is going to make decisions perfectly every time. Yes, like, what's the true, dissidence there? <laughs> true. Although I would quibble with one thing, which is if Tom it's Hawkins. a replay, <laughs> if it's a replay involving Hawthorne, it's always a goal to us. That's that's the one thing. <laughs> All right, let's finally get around to a brief update on where we're at with AFLW. We are still as of as of. The moment that we're recording this pod without any update on whether or not the season will go ahead in August 2022, what are your thoughts? Where are we at? The players are starting to speak up, I think, more publicly. Sabrina Frederick, among others, has spoken out on social media this week. Some others are starting to come forward and saying this is not really tenable. You've got to tell us when we're going to play. What's what's going to happen, Julia? Who the hell knows what's going to happen? <laughs> this is this has gone on too long, hasn't it? You know, the story we're being told is that there's no CBA because so there's no CBA that they can't do. Like, but there was no CBA when they leaked that it was going to be an August start date months ago. So why did that happen if the this actual timeline wasn't wasn't going to come to pass you know players are just I'm glad I can see some players are actually gone on holiday I'm like okay good <laughs> yes <laughs> some of you are actually getting a rest but I'm sure some of them have just gone straight back to work it's such a weird time you know we're seeing players commit quote-unquote commit to be traded to other places I saw Gemma Houghton's in a port 
jersey today, but it doesn't seem to mean anything yet because we don't know what the rules are about sign and trade. We don't know what the rules are about expansion. It's just, look, there is no way that that a men's competition in any sport in Australia would Mm. be treated in this way. Yeah, absolutely. Shelley? Julia said it all. I haven't got anything else to say. If I say something, you all have to burn the podcast and find somewhere else to live. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. And it's it's hard to resist the, the conclusion that it's really disrespectful to the, you know, hugely disrespectful to these players who are trying to, you know, organize work and where they're gonna live and everything like that. And and, and everything's up in the dare, up in the air. It's just totally inconceivable. And it's something well within the power of the AFL to get this right and to to make a call and to do it now. So fingers crossed that we have some news very soon. I feel for the players who are in limbo. All right. It's time for final business. It's been a very heavy pod. Let's have a little bit of fun as we go out. Shelley, is there any final business? There is. It is going to be the Sir Nichols round and that is going to start over the next few weeks. So it is time to get your jumpers. All of the Indigenous round jumpers are popping out and they're very exciting. They have these beautiful stories and they look so wonderful. So if you've missed out in other years and you think, I really want one, be quick because some of them go within like minutes unless it's like Richmond or Essendon where they keep them all year you know they they go really really quick so if you've got your eye on one make sure you snap it up and wear it to the game fantastic that's a very special round so that'll be great Shelley thanks for reminding us of all of that let's have a bit of fun before we go out I want to we are in election mode it is excruciating I can't bear it I want it to be all over and done with but let's just imagine for a moment that each of us were in the campaign running for prime minister and I was going to ask you to pitch to the voters one policy, one footy-related policy that you think would get you over the line to be elected. I'll I'll go first. I'm pretty confident that my idea is the best one because I think it's one that the people are really invested in, and that is that I would, in my first days in office, commission and install a monument, a memorial to AFLX outside the (laughs) MCG so that we can never forget the short life and just wonderful contribution that AFLX made to our lives and our communities. Shelley? And that exorbitant amount of money that was spent on it at the start of the (laughs) AFLW life. Yeah, that's something I never, ever, ever want to forget. So what is mine? I say people. I say listen close. I have your hearts and your tummies and your bellies, everything in mind. Free six-pack of party pies when you arrive at the footy. All yours. I'm looking after you. I am your girl. Probably won't be able to change much because I get a little distracted by shiny things, but you will have party pies. Will there be a vegetarian option, Shelley? Uh, Please. Yes, that is a very, very, very good point. A quiche for you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm on board. That sounds pretty good. Julia Kiara, what's your pitch to the to the voting public of Australia? Well, like a good Scott Morrison, I know I don't need to win over the whole country. I just need to win over about 20,000 people in a few key seats, okay? Yeah. This is my pitch. (laughs) (laughs) For those of you that wait till every March to start collecting your footy cards, you are delighted that in the last few years, in every packet of footy cards, there are a couple of women's players in there, yeah? Yes, yes, yes. yes. However... As those cards are given out in March, one might receive, as I've just done, 
Maddie Prasparkas in a Carlton jumper. Aaron <laughs> Phillips in an Adelaide jumper. <sighs> so I declare that I will do an exclusive round of AFLW footy cards, every single player in their correct jumper, and I think that I will get my key votes in my key seats, mostly in and north of Melbourne. <laughs> Damn, you just won. <laughs> That's it. Prime Minister Kiera has spoken. Thank you for tuning in this week. We know it was a bit of a heavy one. Lots of depressing and sad and frustrating stories to go through. But thank you for sticking with us all the way through. Enjoy the footy this weekend. Go Hawks. And there's only... Shocker. (laughs) Absolute shocker. No shame. There's only one thing left to say, ladies, and that is... Go Go footy! And the blues. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.